Hi, this is the Organisational Success Academy from the Oxford Review, bringing you the very latest research in leadership, management, organisational development, design, transformation and change, human resources and human capital, organisational learning, coaching and work psychology from around the world to make you the most up-to-date and knowledgeable person in the room. Today I'm talking with George Caceres, uh, who's the author of Build Better Teams, Creating Winning Teams in a Digital Age. Now, George is the founding director of TeamUp and his expertise lies in leading team development and executive team leader coaching programs. George is one of our members and is heavily researched and evidence-based in his practice. George is also a chartered occupational sports psychologist who's been working around the world in sectors like banking, asset management, insurance, oil and gas, publishing, retail software, premiership football and media. And he's done a lot of work in the sports psychology and personal resilience and mental toughness areas. And George has previously worked as a principal consultant at KPMG. Welcome, George. Morning. Nice to see you again. Do you just want to kick us off by giving us a little bit more about your background and what kind of led up to you writing the book? So my background's in the last 15, the last 25 years has been in business um, psychology, predominantly in team developments and executive coaching and culture change. Those are three sort of spaces I've worked in. And uh, team development's always been my, my sort of speciality and my interest. I find teams the most interesting part of my work by far. And I suppose like many people who create something, they do it because they're unsatisfied with what is currently there in terms of models and approaches. And I spent a number of years cogitating different, trying different mechanisms to solve a puzzle, which is how do you create an order? for a team to follow, a leader to follow, to, to maximize the chance of that team working well. I, and I've eventually got there. So that hence the book. Okay. Got you. So we'll just get straight into the book and you start the book with the story of Ed Stafford and Luke Collier's expedition to walk the entire length of the Amazon river. I think it's about 4,000 miles or something, isn't it? Can you just give us a little bit of this story and what happened when Medet Cho Rivera, who's a Peruvian adventurer and jungle expert. Back in 12, 13 years ago now, two very good friends, very close friends, Luke and, and Ed, decided that they would take on something that's never been done before, which is to walk the entire length of the Amazon. And it was seemed deemed to be an, an impossible task. They couldn't get any sponsorship or from the National Geographic Society. They couldn't get even local people on the ground thought it was ridiculous. So they, they, they but they disbelieved in themselves and, and they decided to go for it. And they set off together and after three months, they fell out spectacularly and, and Luke left and Ed was on his own. And at that moment, about four or five days later, he met Cho who was a guide who originally contracted to walk with him for a couple of days and ended up staying two years. And I thought that was quite an interesting, uh, sort of dichotomy. What meant, what's one, one, one relationship worked very badly and one worked so well that they actually did what no one else felt was possible. Why was that? What was it about that, the way they worked together that explained their success? And that's why it's in the book. That's why the, I lead off with that and, and then hmm. kindly gave me a forward and allowed for the book and allowed me to interview him. And it's very relevant to, to today's working environment, funnily enough as well. 
Yeah, that, that's actually a bit by follow-up. How do a couple of people walking um, along the Amazon, uh, what's that got to do with building better teams in organizations in a digital age? <laughs> yeah, I, I, that's not a bad question. I ask myself the same question. Is it, it you know, <laughs> but you know what? It's so relevant because uh, the question's relevant and also the situation's relevant because they represent the modern team in many ways. They, first of all, they're going into uncharted territory. And we talk about VUCA, volatile, uncertain, complex, and ambiguous. And they were taking on situations which they couldn't, and they could do a little bit of preparation for, but they didn't know what was going to happen. So that's very much the digitalized age is very much around rapid change and extraordinary pace of development, creating new opportunities, which has to be seized quickly. And uh, so that was kind of similar. They also had to deal with regulation and a lot of a bureaucracy when you're walking through the Amazon, piles and piles of filling in, checking into the chief's hut and going through the police. And that was also, they had to deal with that. They had the mental health issue as well, how they're going to keep themselves sane. And of course, mental health is uh, top of the list. They had diversity because in that team, they didn't, there wasn't just two white men, stale walkers initially with Luke and Ed, but they had a whole uh, support acts of guides who were from different parts of the country or, or local indigenous. They had a virtual setup because, and of course, going back to diversity, Cho himself was not indigenous. He actually was from outside of, of, of the country. So he was called Negro and, and Ed was called Gringo. And there was a diversity in that pair, right? From that sort of setup. Then you had the virtuality of the team, again, very relevant because you had people back in the UK who were supporting with a bit of fundraising and some marketing and uh, social media. So there's a lot of, lots of situations which are very familiar to most team leaders and team members now, they were in, in very harsh conditions, but they were very synonymous with those, with those situations, those conditions. Yeah. Okay. I get it. I see it. Yeah. So just turning today's organizations and businesses, what, what types of problems are organizational teams facing today? And I suppose, how do they recognize those problems? What are the symptoms of these problems? So this, the problems with teams, it, it sounds a bit negative, right? But let's just change that to sort of the challenges that the teams face today are um, not too dissimilar to how to, first of all, they're the same as they've always been, which is how do you get a diverse set of complex individuals who have these things called emotions, which are not predictable to work together. And the track record of teams working well together is not great. The, the, the academic research, as you says that, that getting high performing teams is a rarity. Most teams are mediocre. So that's the same as it's, as it that hasn't changed, but what has changed is even more extreme now than it has ever been with, with digitalization in particular and the pace you have teams forming rapidly. They haven't got the same time of, um, forming normally storming and going through a linear process. They have to hit, get to work from the get-go. They're often project-based and they come together for a set number of months. They have to increasingly work cross-functionally and the team members are members of several teams, not just one team. And so they're the pressure on teams now and the, the expectation and the uncertainty and the uh, chaos in many ways, and that the, the is never been greater. So it's never been more tough in my experience and 25 years in consulting with teams to never, it's never been more difficult to work and, and lead a successful team than it is today. And it's not going to get any easier. I think they need help. I really do. What are the kind of warning signs that teams would see that they've got issues? So the typical, the symptoms, first of all, is feelings. Team members don't feel connected. Obviously with COVID, 
that hasn't helped because of the virtual nature of teaming and teams these days are coming out of the COVID and more moving now into hybrid working. A lot of teams work virtually anyway, these days, global virtual teams, especially. So the symptoms of team working is not just related to virtual teams, but people who feel disconnected because they don't get the face time. But generally people, even in intact teams, face-to-face teams don't feel like they're a team. They feel the team members are too busy looking after their own pieces of the pie rather than the collective. You tend to get ambiguity, especially in role responsibilities. Roles might be clear, but responsibilities are not so clear. So people are not quite sure who's responsible for what decision and who's doing what. So that can lead to a bit of stress and frustration. Trust is the, the old adage of trust is comes in. We don't really, we don't really trust each other as much as we would like. And I think decision-making and execution is slow and execution is lots of treacle, bureaucracy getting in the way, meetings are frustrating. So there's a whole host of symptoms, which I see, which tell me that the team isn't um, where it needs to be. Yes. We'll, we'll come back to this issue of, of trust in a minute, because it's, it's yeah. kind of a, a, a key issue in teams and, and because teams, as you say, they're moving and forming and you're quite likely not just in one team, you're in a whole series of teams. Those teams are just set up for a short time and then mm. you've got to move on. So the teams themselves are transient and, and, and not just the people within the teams. Just to go to the, the, the theory side of things for a second yeah. around team development models. And, and there's loads of these. We've got yeah. Tuckman and as you've mentioned, the forming normally, yeah. storming and performing model, Comey's five dysfunction models, Hawkins five C's models and so on yeah. and so forth. What are the problems that you see with these models for live teams? I think there's a couple of major issues I have with those models. First one is that some of them are descriptive rather than they don't tell you what to do. So the forming, norming, Tuckman, which everyone knows because it's so lovely and easy to pronounce, doesn't really tell us what to do. It just describes the stages and it's quite linear and it's also 70 years old. So, you know, that interesting, but how useful is it? Not particularly. Then you have other models, which are very academic. Peter Hawkins is um, five C's, covers the ground. So does Ruth Wagman's model. They cover the grounds nicely. They tell you about how teams work. But most teams um, don't really have the time or the influence to influence the culture around the organization. For example, the context is, is relevant, but they just want to know how do we work from the get-go. I've got my team in front of me. How do I actually get the best out of them? So they're, they're not so helpful. The third and, and the, one of the other reasons why they're not so helpful is they don't give an order. They just give all the things that have to be done. That's wonderful in terms of telling us the factors that affect team working. But if I'm a team leader. I'd like to know what the pecking order is. How do I, where do I start? And it's not easy. Teams are complex emergent systems. So working out what to do in what order is a bloody nightmare, to be frank, for most team leaders. So they bring in people like me to help them. And I think there's a lot of teams that don't need that help if it can be provided in some form of sequence, which they don't have. And the ones that do have a sequence, and the, there's not very many, the one that sort of stands out, I think it's been very successful because it stands out, is Lencioni's model. But that sequence is not based on good science. It's, it's actually got very little, very no academic research at all behind it. And when we look at the academic research, which is what we've done, it doesn't stack up. He's got the order wrong to be a bit black and white about it. He starts up with building vulnerability and emotional-based trust. And that's not, the, for the, in extreme teaming, that's not where we go. In any teaming, we don't go into that sort of level of that starting point. We need to do something else first. So those are the three reasons. 
to two, you're not helpful enough. Don't give a sequence and the sequence is wrong. Yeah. And I, I think you also raise another point there about the evidence that sits behind some of these models. Sometimes there's good, there's a good evidential basis and, and things like the five dysfunction models like you, I can't, I can't find any. So, there isn't any, there isn't any. What you have is a very charismatic consultant. He's very good on the podium and he's very good and, um, it makes sense. And there's nothing else out there. So you go, oh, yeah, that, that's nice. I like the sound of that. It's a lovely book. Mm. And so let's do that. But there is, it's, it's poor science and, um, yes. So we thought there's a better way and that's what we've created, a better way. Yes. Yeah. It's plausibility over based work. We see this a lot where consultants are making up things and uh, it, it sounds plausible, but when you actually start to delve beneath it a little bit, yeah, usually they start getting a little bit defensive and you start to find out why. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Exactly. Anyway, <laughs> let's just turn to this, the, the issue of trust. You spoke about it a little bit earlier on. And, and you spend an entire chapter looking at trust, yeah. in particular the development of a thing called Swift Trust. Yeah. Can you just explain what Swift Trust is and why it's so important for teams, particularly today's teams, who are likely, and particularly for the foreseeable future, to be, as you say, either in a hybrid model, digitally connected, so the remote teams, or completely remote teams? Yeah. So Swift Trust is a wonderful term in itself. It's not new. It's been around for number 20, about 20 years. But it's re-emerged, and um, I'm hoping I can help to put it back into the center of things. Swift trust is really was first given in the context of extreme teams. Okay, so you had these teams that the researchers noticed had to go well immediately. Emergency teams, army platoons, rescue teams, which didn't have the luxury of going through the stages of the, for example, the Tuckman stuff. They have to work from very early stages. And so they looked at the, why it is that those teams work so well from the beginning. And what emerged was they had this thing called swift trust and they broke swift trust down into, into a couple of very key elements. One was they had respect. They knew everyone was on the same page from the beginning and they had, they, they respected the competence that each of them had in the team. So in all those teams I've given you, they've gone through some solid training to get to be, um, SAS or a Navy SEALs or any kind of crack troop or to be a paramedic, you know, that, that, you know, that they've gone, that those people have gone through, they've made a selection, made the cut, they've gone through months and months in the case of the army, a year, years of um, trying to get into that sort of team. So, you know, they're going to be bloody good. So you automatically trust them from the get go. And that's interesting because that's the very same thing we have in organization. These teams now have to form quite quickly. They are in a way, extreme teams, a bit like sports teams, like skip a yacht crews that get thrown together for races. They don't know each other, but they know they're very good sailors and they need to run a race or they need to do something. So they, so, so Swift trust is so important and the main con condition of Swift trust is, and the, that the, the reason why I'm a big supporter of that in modern teams is because it's very much cognitively based trust. It's not emotional based trust. They're not really interested in psychological safety or vulnerability or empathy. I just want to know, can you do a decent job? And are we agreed where we're going, how we're going to get there? And from that, they then start to build the relationship based trust. And that's where the vulnerability and the empathy and the psychological safety kicked in. But the order is very definite. Start off with, with the cognitive based trust, then go to the emotional relationship based trust. And that's the, the key differentiator. 
presumption of expertise in the rest of the team and that, that people know what they're doing. And certainly my background is military and, and police. And certainly during a lot of large scale public order disturbances and things, you'll get put into teams with people you've never even met. And they may even be from completely different forces. One or two of the teams I ended up with were pulled together at the last moment. And you've got to just rely on the expertise of everybody around you and that everybody knows what they're doing and they know how to do that. And then from that comes the bond. You know, I agree yeah. with you completely. So George? I was going to say that in that situation, David, you know, what you said, everyone knows what they're doing and you know that they know how to go about doing it. So you assume you're on the same page early on and you clarify quickly. If there's anything uncertain, you then get, make sure you're on the same page. So in the organizational setting, it's slightly different because we don't know that we have CVs. And we have reputations, and, <laughs> but we know a bit more suspicious because we've been let down probably too many times. So the thing that it differ, the, the big differentiator that I work with teams is you can't assume that you're on the same page so much. You have to, you have to f ensure that you feel you're on the same page, you have to get on the same page. Mm. And, and those are, so you have to establish very quickly the mental models in that team and and that can be done quite quickly. And that's where the swift trust comes in. If the teams really focus on that early on yeah. they sh and they acquire that understanding rapidly, then they can generate that swift trust very quickly. And mm. um, that's really the, the starting point for the team is to, is to get to that point. Yes. Getting a shared mental model between the team members. Yeah, definitely. Absolutely. So you've referred to this once or twice, this idea of extreme teams. And yeah. I get it as far as the special forces are concerned and expeditions of the Amazon and things like that. Yeah. What do you mean by extreme teams in an organizational context? Okay. So the extreme teams, I reserve extreme, extreme teams for teams, normally for teams that where lives are at stake, right? Either in the team or as a result of what the team is doing. So in organizations, lives aren't really at stake. Profits at stake, <laughs> engagement levels are at stake, mm -hmm. jobs are at stake. However, extreme team, extreme teaming and the notion of, of the back to that Amazonian example, where you're dealing with fast, rapid transformation, you're dealing with increased individual individualism in the workplace. You've got more psychopathy. In, in the workplace now, people are looking at themselves more than the greater good. We know that levels of Machiavellianism and narcissism and psych psychopaths are, are increasing in the workplace. You're dealing with, as I said, increased regulation and compliance. And that is itself is that's going through the roof, as we know, for, for, for good reason. You're dealing with, um, greater mental health issues than have ever been experienced. You're dealing with virtual working and the absence of, and the growth of global virtual teams with different cultures and diversity. You're dealing with diversity. So you're not just dealing with not just white men and stale across the team, which is how it used to be, but you, you, so you, you're dealing with gen teams that have to manage the complexity of more gender, more ethnicity, more age diversity as well. Different generations, yeah. different teams, members belonging to different teams. So diversity and, and the complexity that brings the opportunity is massive. We know that, but the complexity and the risk rewards are. So all these things conspire to make it a much more extreme environment. And then you've got AI and so the fact that team members are now having to face into the possibility of their jobs becoming automated and how that's going to affect um, them. So the, these conditions are pretty harsh. That's why I would, I would say I use the word reservedly, slightly reservedly, but I think it's very relevant. We're more extreme now than they've ever been in organizations. Yes, I certainly think 
and, and particularly with the pandemic, but I think things have been gradually getting more and more, as you put it, extreme in terms of the conditions that people are working under in organizations anyway, just because of the, the pace of change is speeding up as well. And Unbelievable. The pace is just extraordinary. Yeah. Sorry, go on. I was going to say, I don't know any, any of my clients, whatever the industries that they're in, you described them at the start of the interview. There aren't any that are relaxed about the world. That's for sure. They're all working fast. They're all tired and stressed. No, no one's got an easy ride, N not for a while, but it, it's, it's getting more intense. And that's why mental yes. health is a big issue as well. And there's certainly been a, a, a bubble of an increase in change with the, with the pandemic that's been going on. And, and they've been able to measure change. There was a really interesting paper a few years ago from the Max Planck Institute looking at the rate of change. And they used the, the proxy of how many research papers were being published, to, you know, how much knowledge, new knowledge was being developed. And what they showed was, it was really fascinating that from the 17 to something like 1895, I can't remember the exact dates now, that the amount of new knowledge that was being produced in the world was about 4% per year, per year, increased per year, per year, per year, mm -hmm. um, and until about 1895. From about 1895, when we really started getting into the scientific method, then up until, and I think it was something like the 1930s or something. So it was quite a small gap that jumped to 5% increase per year, per year, per year. And then from there, it's jumped to a 9% increase per year, stayed steady at that. But when you think about this year's 9%, in fact, it's going to be because we are in a bubble and, and they're tracking the bubble at the moment in terms of the rate of pay, the pace of change that to this year's it's more than 9% this year because of the pandemic, but two years ago's 9% is a cumulative 9% yeah. on top of all the other 9%. Yeah, yeah. So, and it's astonishing. We, we track the amount of research going on. There's roughly about 115,000 peer-reviewed research papers published every month now. This wow. Last year. Yeah, wow. I know it's incredible, yeah. incredible. Yeah. But anyway, so in, in the book, you've, you've constructed what you call a code. Yeah. So firstly, let's just unpack this. What, why have you called it a code? <laughs> I've called it a code because, um, you could call it a sequence, you could call it an algorithm, but code is simple and I quite like simplicity and the code is, tells us what to do. The shortest code that we can have mathematically is three and in a complex system, a complex emergent system, which is a team, any more than three, I think is the is, is you're pushing your luck, right? It's whether it stacks up. So we have a code of three, which, uh, we, we break down into subsets, but the code really is a step, a series of stepping stones. And we give the code to our clients and we say, follow the code. Sounds follow the yellow big road and you get to the, uh, <laughs> you, you get to the emperor, follow the code and you give it statistically speaking, scientifically, statistically speaking, you give yourself the best chance of having a highest performing team in the quickest, of, um, fastest pe uh, pace possible. And so that's it. So we have, we, and out of all the drivers of team performance, which there are loads, we simplify them into 27 and drivers, which we know all correlate each one individually correlates to performance from the research. We put them into, into this code and we've tested it. And yeah, I put my reputation, I put my own fees as a consultant on the line. When I give the code, I say it works. If it doesn't work, I, you, I give you, um, 50% of my fees back. So yeah, I, I, it stacks up and I, and I'm a big, very, unless there's a new evidence to suggest that things have changed, the code will stand. And then when, if anything changes, 
then the code will change. But for for a long period of, I don't expect it to change, by the way. I think the science is well grounded and it's not going to go anywhere soon. So that's why we call it a code. Okay. I've, I've got to ask you, <laughs> you mentioned it. Have you ever given the 50% back? <laughs> no, I, I've heard lots of people ask, but I haven't given it. No, that's not true. Yeah. But no one has, no one has come back and said, look, we're not happy with it. Far, far from it. So we're getting the opposite reaction. And right. um, <laughs> so that's why you'll see when we go through the code, that there's a reason I do that, right? It's called skin yeah. in the game. It's all part of the way teams need, need the best working is to have skin in the game. So I give my own skin in the game Yeah, and so far so good. So can you outline the code for us, George? No, it's secret source, secret spelling. Yeah. No, by the book. So, so the code is, um, three stages. The first is, is we call getting set, setting the team up. And, um, this is all about shared mental models and creating cognitive based trust. And, and there's nine mental models, which team advised to create very quickly. And, um, they include, or they are divided into three, each the code has three sections and there's three subsections. So three times three times three, 27 drivers. And in the order that we've, we give it, you start off with mission, which is, does a team agree? All these are agreements. This first stage is like, oh, do we agree? Do we agree? Do we agree? Do we have a contract here? So this is about the shared mental models. Yeah. We're not actually really doing the teaming at this stage. Not really. We're not, we're just agreeing with the same page as we work. So do we have a clear vision? Do we have a shared sense of purpose? And do we have agreed set of shared goals? Now the word shared is important because the team, great teams share goals. And if they don't share goals, then they're a team, but they just have slightly different teams. So understanding where the shared goals are is really key. So that's, we call that mission. The second part of the code is we call it plans. And that's how we're going to go about doing our work. So that's, do we have a high level strategy? Now high level is important because we can't get too detailed these days, just, we need a, a, a kind of a rough direction of, of travel. Do we have stakeholder priorities? Are they clear? Because we have to somehow convert our high level plan into, into our priorities. And the big one, as I mentioned earlier on is role responsibilities. Are we clear on our role responsibilities for any ambiguity that we can sort out quickly as to what we're doing? And then the third part of that set getting set is we call that uh, the disciplines of teaming. And here we have, do we agree on our meeting structures? How are we going to govern ourselves and the right people, the right time, the right cadence. Then we have norms. Do we agree on how we're going to work together, our target behaviors and our norms? And the final one, as I mentioned already, which is, our, this is the big one, which is missed, I think in a huge believer of this is, do we have skin in the game to team? Are we, are we playing a team sport? Do we, are we incentivized and motivated and given enough skin in the game to work collaboratively together, not just work to produce individual contributions. So those nine uh, models, those nine mental models, if a team agrees on all those things, they're off and running, right? They have, and they will have high levels of cognitive trust, high level of swift trust, and they're ready then to progress to the, to the next phase, which is, um, getting safe. So we set, get set, get safe. So safe, as you probably gather, but psychological safety. And here we have vulnerability, the three levels here are vulnerability. The team is vulnerable, able to own up to what they don't know, ask for help. E even humor here is in interesting because when we humor, we take a bit of a risk as well. The positivity and humor can be a sign of vulnerability in a way. We have empathy, which is listening and um, sensitivity and offering help. 
and being able to uh, respond nicely to what's being said and felt. And then the third one, the key part of psychological safety is learning. Absolutely critical that you have a learning team who are able to reflect together, not just individually in their one-to-ones, but collectively have the group learning going on. And mistakes are destigmatized and feedback is exchanged. And those three competencies, skill sets, they make up the set, the safe stage. So you've got, so far you've got get set, get safe. Now, both of those first two phases, they don't really produce the value. They set the conditions for the value. So the value is created in the third phase, which is getting strong. And here we have release of, we have, it's actually value driving interactions that are taking place. In other words, effective collaboration between people. And so we want to see here, the three phases here, the three skill sets of autonomy, particularly important in those virtual teams, especially is dis distributed leadership and autonomous working, lots of co commitment making again, very important in virtual teams that we have very tangible. I will do this by do X by Y. And lots of visible, tangible examples of progress being made to keep our spirits going. And we have constructive tension, which is the big one, because that's where in virtual teams, especially people struggle a little bit in any teams for that matter. We need to be assertive, not aggressive or passive and be able to hold each other to account. And the key thing here is linked, all these are linked as you, they're all joined in some way, shape or form. So without understanding the shared goals and what shared goals mean, the team leader isn't the one that holds to account. Team lead, team members need to hold each other to account in the shared goal space. This is one of the key pieces of work that we, we do. And then the th th final one, it will culminate in experimentation, the ability to experiment, try things out. And of course, this is exactly what Ed and Cho had to do. They had to probe in complex environments. You have to probe. You don't know the answer you have to go into it and see what happens and then react in the moment. And then you're iterating this is the agile working, iterating and finding out what works and adapting very quickly. Now, if you go through those three phases, you've got get set, get safe, get strong, get set predicts. We found get set predicts, get safe. This is why the, the code is why it is. Mm. It gets the teams that are get set are more likely to be safe and the teams that are safe are more likely to be, to be strong. And the teams that are strong are then more likely to create the positive outcomes that we want, which is the fourth stage, which is an out outcome stage, which is get success, which is innovation, adaptability. You get adaption through those and you get profound levels of trust. You get results. Most importantly in a team, they want to see results, they want to see outcomes created and you get continuous learning for the next, as a result of the teaming. So the, the knowledge is retained for the next team. So that's the code, get set, get safe, get strong, get success. Sounds a bit cheesy, but it's, it, the science is all in there. Yes, certainly. And, and you can see that in the book, it's all evidence-based and you can see the research that sits behind it and certainly because of the way that you've referenced it. Can you just, so can we just go back a step? So to the, the get set phase and give us some idea of the kinds of things that uh, a team might be able to do to get set, as you said. These are conversations. Okay. So let's start up at the top with purpose. The most important part of why do we exist? So the team can create a purpose statement, which is what we're doing. What's our unique contribution, who for, and why, what's the benefit. And so that sounds a little bit like, okay, that's just an exercise, but actually the team doesn't understand its purpose that affects decisions and prioritization. And so going through that's a powerful ex exercise. And of course they can pull that purpose out on a regular basis and remind themselves, are we really delivering to our purpose, whether that be to create a, is it more around 
growing the business or is it more around we have to reduce and create a nimble, cost efficient? We haven't got to be world class. We're an easy jet, not a BA or whatever. Yeah. So having that kind of purpose is important. So that's a good conversation around purpose. Um, shared goals are really important to identify and ask. What, what I do is I ask team members, tell me your top four or five when I'm interviewing the team for a workshop. I ask them what their top shared goals are. What are the most important shared goals to this team? Ideally, what you want is the same answer from everybody. But quite often, I say pretty much every team, I don't get the same answer. And most teams don't know what their shared goals really are. They know their individual goals. They're roughly speaking what the goals are, but don't really know which of those goals really require teaming in whole groups or subgroups. So an exercise to really go through where are our, what are our key goals and are those represented in our meetings is another question. Are they really front and center of how we run our meetings? Role responsibilities, simply a question in this situation is supposing that we are working together and on this situation, you gave me at the start of this interview, this is how it's going to last an hour, be quite informal. I'll ask the questions. You gave me the questions in advance. And so this is, so right now I'm very clear on what my role is, what your role is, our responsibilities. But if you didn't do that, I might be confused in terms of what are we going to be talking about? What are the, what's the, so I might go to you and say, David, what is this about? What's the, who's the audience? What's the, what, you know, what's the. So that's basically questions. We ask each other questions and get that clarity. So a series of questions that need to be asked in that role responsibility is something that teams can do. And then there's exercises around norms and behavior, very important teams galvanize around a shared ways, shared ways of working, you know, the exercises they can do to agree. Well, one of the most important things that we can do, there's various exercises that I run and they're in the book, many of these exercises and examples of what we do are in the book. So there's every contract has a way of contract of getting to that kind of agreement there's yeah there's an answer to all of these mechanisms which is one of the key criteria in the code is everything that's in there has to be actionable has to be i've then put stuff in there like cultures i've mentioned i don't even put selection into the team because we know we've got to select people in the team but there's not i'm not interested so much when i work with the team about how you select into the team is there we have to get the team going yeah. so by nature everything in the code has a way of developing yeah. And, and sometimes teams don't have any choice about selection anyway. They're just drawn yeah, together because exactly. they're the, they're the people that have to be closest to the boss's desk or something, you know, yeah, exactly. Quite a lot. And, yeah. yeah, exactly. And they haven't got the budget to, to change. Yeah. yeah. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Let's just move on to team safety. What kinds of things would help there? The big thing with safety is the leader. The leader really sets the tone when it comes to um, psychological safety. And so we want the leader to create a tone where it's okay to, as I say, the code tells us that the leader has to be, and the team has to be open and imperfect essentially. And we, we don't want heroes. We want people who are human, who make mistakes and learn from them. And so admitting where you're not so good at something, asking for, and very important that we destigmatize de errors as, as learning opportunities. And we want humility. We don't want aggression and finger pointing, even humor, we've got to be careful with humor. It's not pointed and sarcastic and it's not clubby or machismo. And oh, now my camera's come up here. So do you want me to move? No, I'll stay here. Yeah. So those are things and very important for learning conversations take place. So retroflections in the agile framework, we retroflect and we want group. So at the end of meetings, how's that meeting? What did we do? What did we, could we, how could we improve in the last month? Which of our norms, behavioral norms to say, for example, we have a norm around making and being reliable on our commitments. How have we made enough commitments? Are we, which ones 
are we more reliable than we were the previous months? These questions yeah. about how we are together help to build psychological safety. Yes. Yeah, I agree. And then certainly issues around, you mentioned this a few times in the book around pre-briefing and debriefing. And I think many teams don't do that enough. In fact, they don't do it at all uh, yeah. from, from what I see. But anyhow, yeah. what about how teams, kinds of ideas for teams getting strong? So the first thing was strong. Okay. If I was saying most clients, that's where they start. They say, George, can we have more adaptability? Can we be more brave? Can we hold So they want all these lovely things. They have to do the first thing with getting strong is do the hard yards first. The hard yards are getting set mm -hmm. and getting, and then building safety. Okay. Yeah. So don't just steam in there and think you can be strong without knowing the root causes of, of dysfunction and conflict are be, because people don't understand or disagree on the, 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 the higher level stuff, like the rules of the game, the responsibilities that we have, what we're trying to achieve, we have different goals. So. Go back to basics, make sure you're ticking the boxes on the set in, in the shared mental models, make sure the team, all the work that Amy Emerson said, it's brilliant science. Okay. The predictive validity of psychological safety on this, this get strong stuff, innovation, adaptability, conflict resolution, decision-making collaboration. They're all very strong correlates. So that's why we say, I say the second thing is make sure that you're building psychological safety. The third, the, so, so those are the basic principles, but to get to the strong phase, you also need, and this is where the talent comes. You need talent to be able to have the right skill sets to do these things. Mm. So the code doesn't guarantee success. You've got to have the right ingredients. People have to have the courage to put themselves out there and the ability and the, and the knowledge and the know-how to make decisions that are going to be informed and going to be intelligent. So how do you get strong over and above talent, over and above setting and safe? You have to have, I think, a autonomous distributed leadership set up for sure. People are given autonomy. There has to be some norms around some reliability set and people are motivated to do that uh, through the reflective process. Emotional management's very key here. If we're agitated and we are stressed, it's hard to have a balanced, non-frustrated, angry discussion with somebody or to avoid the conversation. So we have to have good emotional management. This is, these are personal skill sets as much as anything else. And with experimentation, especially then, you know, how we react to and celebrate efforts and, and how we celebrate, not just what we achieve, but try to achieve something is also very important. So those are how all ways to get strong. Okay. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. And, and certainly for, from my perspective, things like emotional regulation as you were as you were mentioning, a kind of key within teams and quite often those, those skills aren't exactly there. But yeah. Okay. Great. Now, um, a bit of a challenge then. So I see a lot of people coming out of the, the sports and military emergency services and arena say I was one of those as well, using their experience and thinking in the organizational business world to help them. Yeah. Now. The main differences I see between those two kinds of worlds is firstly, that organizations and, and all businesses driven by the need to make a profit. And usually this means at the bottom line, reducing costs and increasing sales, not a focus that sports and military teams usually have to contend with. So the second big difference is that sports and in the military worlds and emergency services and things, certainly that I've been in the past. They spend a lot of time training and preparing for specific events. And we see it with the, the Olympics and they've spent years training for an event. Now in the organization business world, 
people don't have time to train in that world. The, the yeah. ratio is different. Yeah. They have to learn on the job. They've got to hit the ground running and, and training abstraction takes time and costs money. Yeah. So whilst there's some training involved, the ratio, as I say, of performing is actually turned around. Yeah. And they can't afford to train for years just for one meeting or whatever yeah. it happens to be. Yeah. So how can this code help in the world where most businesses and organizations inhabit? It's a brilliant question. It's a very good question, David. There's more to, I think, one of the reasons I left sport predominantly, although I'm still working with, with uh, professional rugby, but is I enjoy the complexity in organizational work that I didn't see in the sporting world, which is as you say, more event driven. So I think it's, so there's a big difference in, in the two. And I think you're absolutely right to distinguish between them. The other thing, of course, which is different is aggression. In sport, we animify to a degree and we compete against, there's a winner and a loser in sports and in military, the same thing, you want to win, lose a battle. So it's not like that in organizations. And so we have to use a lot more of our emotional intelligence, I think in many ways to not be so combustible, combative and aggressive to get over, to get the wins, to win the events. So anyway, to answer your question, the code is the way, the, the wrong way to use the code. Okay is to say, okay, I tell you what we're going to do, we're, we're not going to get safe until we get set and we're not going to get strong until we're safe. Okay. It doesn't work that way. And if we were training as a team, we go, okay, let's do. Now the codes is that is a developmental code, right? So in other words, if we're going to work on getting strong, let's start work, our work in that setting phase. We don't, we can't not collaborate. We can't not wait to have nice, empathic, vulnerable conversations until we are clear. We have to do the whole thing together. We have to, we have to be running from the get-go. How we spend our training time as a team, the code directs us towards, if we're going to work on something, we need to be working on these fundamentals first. So that's where the code kicks in. That's why it's a little bit different to, to an, it's a sports where, you know, we, we, we don't have that kind of longitudinal four-year journey to get to a point we have to be doing it all together but we'll, we'll but we train a little bit more focused on that those that code in that order if that makes sense okay yeah yeah get that okay great so let's just move on a little bit and how do you think the modern digital age changes teamwork and more importantly the team development process that you've been talking about it, it makes the teams more virtual for a start. Mm -hmm. That's the first thing. And that puts pressure on teams. There's less, there's more conflict in virtual teams. There's less trust. There's less, there's more uh, ambiguity in terms of decisions aren't made so quickly as well. So there's more challenges with a virtual team. That's for sure. So digitalization also makes changes more rapid and more frequent. So the state of flux. Uh, so therefore clarifying. We have to work harder to ensure we have the same mental models through that flux. What that means is we have to ask more questions. Asking questions is a very strong driver of team performance. There's lots of good evidence to show that teams that ask more questions do better. So clarification, questioning, challenging assumptions, checking out the nodding dog of the old, where you tell me to do something as my boss, I go away and do it and can report back. That's those long, those days are long gone. I have to just, just, it's just not so simple and autocratic as it used to. Team members have got to take responsibility 
and also shared leadership they've got to And take. I think that's the other thing, David, is distribu- much more distributed leadership in a digitalized world. And the leader becomes less heroic. The leader becomes more facilitator. And people across the team are sharing responsibility, sharing leadership in different areas of different goals. And yeah, so th- those are all impacts of digitalization. Okay, great. So if you could give three pieces of advice to team leaders today, what would they be? Three pieces of advice, follow the code would be one, (laughs) buy the book. Three pieces of advice for team leaders would be, first of all, consider your success and your future a reflection for your team's success. So de-ego yourself, de-hero, be less of a hero and really think about the team being the most important factor you have is one. Two would be skin in the game for teaming. We tend to do a lot of one-to-ones and holding you accountable for this and that person accountable for that hub and spoke type leadership. That's got to change a little bit now. And so have create skin in the game, motivate people to collaborate and hold them to account for that in positive ways and give the message that those sub teams and small teams are important as well as the big team would be the second one. And I think the third one is find a way to, despite the pressures and strains that we have, positive, fun approach to one, don't take yourself too seriously and enjoy the journey. You can't be perfect is so important as well, because that creates contagion, positive contagion. So there's a lot of good science that we, we want to apply. If we apply it in a serious way, then the team gets tight and, and we need, it's tough out there. So we need to enjoy the ride, even though the military very good, this black humor is very important to have that kind of gallows humor in, in the workplace too. So enjoy the ride would be the third. Great. Okay. Yes. And, and the gallows humor, the, the, the whole humor piece is really important. And there's a, we've been engaging quite a lot of the research around that in, in the members area. What about someone who isn't a team leader? They're just a member of the team. They wish their team was a little bit more like what we've been describing here or has been described as a high performance team, or they just want a better, more productive team and they're frustrated. What, what advice would you give them? That's a really, another really good question. Is too much emphasis placed on leadership, not enough on membership? I, I would say, and unreservedly, learn the code because the code is for the team, not for the team leader. Know the code, contribute to, your, to, to making sure that where you can you have the shared mental model with people that you're working with, that you are contributing to psychological safety, that you are managing yourself and operating in that, those strong skill sets. So I would say the code is very relevant for all team members to take responsibility for and contribute to the team climate across that code would be my, would be don't assume that's just for the leader or senior members. It's for you and it'll never, it, the recipes for, for success, they're all drip data driven and they were also, they're good for well-being as well. So mm. I would say, get to know that those at 27 drivers and make sure that you are working on those yourselves. Yeah. I think that's quite important. I th- certainly if you're stuck in a team and you're feeling frustrated, starting that, that conversation with the team about that feeling being vulnerable for the moment that you were, you were talking about earlier, but also this whole, whole idea of informal leadership. Like there isn't just a leader. There are lots of leaders in different moments and in different conversations and, and you can lead 
informally as well. And there's a whole science behind that and mm-hmm. having influence. And usually that's through what's become known as employee voice, but actually saying things and, and starting conversations going that are positive and which was one of the things that you were. You, you... Absolutely. So just to end with any last bits of wisdom about helping to create a better team? Last bits of wisdom would be, let's have a think. I think the shared goals are know your shared, know which goals are individual, know the, which goals are shared. Cats and Bash's work on leader led two, two teams is brilliant. I, I think yeah. that's very good. Would be one thing. I did write some notes on this one, but your interview questions have been so good. I've lost my, my, <laughs> oh yes, that's right. This is the one I had down here, which is stretch. Stretch yourself. This, the whole idea of the code in a way is moving towards an, a, a kind of a place where we stretch out outside of our comfort zones. If you think about modern teaming and modern work, ambiguity, uncertainty, influencing collaboration grow we have to move be able to accept the fact we're not always going to be comfortable in our place to work and therefore we have to grow as and and growth means we have to stretch and extend ourselves and be prepared to make mistakes and i think if we are able to stretch collectively as a team which is what really that third stage is all about then it really helps we adapt together okay adaption is a team sport but individually i would say go and be prepared to stretch and in, embrace the concepts of going beyond one's comfort zones would be would be my final bit of advice. Yes, and I, I, th- I think that's important, particularly that that whole idea of being prepared for failure. Try things, and and I think that's really important as well because that's where where the development comes from. Thank you so much, George. This has been wonderful. How can people get hold of you? Firstly, of the book, and then secondly, how can they contact you if they want to? So the book is out in November in the States, November the 9th in the States. It's on Amazon. You can pre-order it. And it's coming out in the UK, December the 9th. Bill's winning. What's the title called? <laughs> the, <laughs> Bill Better Teams. Bill Better Teams. Creating winning teams in the digital age. Do you see how much of a non-commercial person I am? I'm too much of a, of a you know, subject matter. So Bill Better Teams, that's right. There's various titles that we were looking at. Actually, that's what confused me. But Bill Better yes. Teams, it's, in, it's on Amazon. If they want to contact me, I'm on george at team-up.company. That's my email address. And you can see us on the internet, on the web, uh, teamup, www.teamup.company. And yeah, hopefully people will have enjoyed this and enjoy the book. Yes, yes, yeah. I've obviously seen a copy. Yes, I've seen the 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 book. Yeah, Uh, and would you recommend? Would you recommend the book, David? Oh yes, yeah. I wouldn't be doing the. I wouldn't be doing the interview without it. It's definitely. Yeah, I see a lot of books and quite a lot of people I don't interview. So, okay, uh, because we're obviously about the evidence based evidence based work. Thank you so much, George. Really appreciate it. Brilliant. I'll put all the links in the show notes to the book, to you, to your email, and everything else. That's great. Delighted to have spoken with you, David. Nice questions. And yeah. I, I enjoy our, our conversation. Thank you for uh, having... Ha, ha. Yeah, it's been good. The, the, the book's been developing, actually. Some of the conversations yeah. have been brilliant. I've really enjoyed them and learned a lot as well. Yeah. That's cool. Good. Okay. Thank you for listening to the Oxford Review podcast. For free research briefings, audio and video research briefings, research infographics, and a whole lot more, visit oxford-review.com. That's Oxford hyphen or dash review.com. And please subscribe, rate and review this podcast. It would mean a lot to us to have your feedback so that we can make this podcast even better for you. <laughs> <laughs>